Hello, and welcome back to I Haven't Heard That Name in Years. And guess what, kids? Guess what, followers of my uh, loosely chronological autobiography sloppy memoir research thing, guess what? We finally made it out of high school. We did it. I am no, I'm still a teenager. We're, we're hanging on. I'm 19 in this one, but uh, we are out. We did it. We graduated high school. Uh, so... As I've mentioned several times in previous interviews, uh, I decided to be a scofflaw and instead of just graduating high school and going immediately to college as I was supposed to do as somebody with decent grades and a lot of promise, uh, I decided to do a year of community service. Now, I'm going to be going through that interview in two weeks uh, where I talked to somebody I was in AmeriCorps with, Dan Farrell, uh, but we decided to start with the start of stand-up comedy, which was technically when I was 19. Now, I didn't really interact with other comedians and do straight ahead stand up open mics until much later not until I graduated college I was about 22 23 but I had a very bizarre soft start in stand up comedy where I was just doing mixed open mics and I was doing variety shows and I was performing at comic book conventions little college things and when I was actually in college I wasn't doing it that much but in the beginning I had this start to stand up that had nothing to do with the actual comedy scene and you know I'll I'll definitely you know I don't want to repeat myself as I did in the interview uh, but this made things different both not going directly to college and starting stand up in a non-traditional way Really, you know, I think a lot about what would happen if I went the traditional way in both instances. And uh, I, you know, I, of course it's me, you know, it's me. I probably still would have done something cool, but it it wouldn't be this. It wouldn't be the same. And I think I would have possibly gotten discouraged out of stand-up much earlier if when I started I hadn't been in such a supportive environment. And I think that if I had gone immediately to college... I wouldn't have appreciated it as much as I did doing a year of community service in the Philadelphia public school system. Uh, but this is an interview with Liza Maris, who I accidentally pronounce wrong uh, on the podcast itself. So please remember, this is Liza Maris and not Maris, as I uh, incorrectly said. Uh, she hosted the open mic that I first started doing stand-up at Fig Cafe out in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. It was a hookah bar full of smoke, um, and I literally started doing it because I saw a sign posted on the door, uh, like some kind of weird coming-of-age movie. And again, I don't want to repeat myself. I go through this whole thing, but I'm so grateful that I continue to have, you know, even at this young age, bizarre, unconventional methods of achieving everything uh, because it has made me stand out. It has made me different. And I've had a lot of cool support along the way. So thanks to everybody who remembers that lost era. It's such an interesting thing. Like I, this is the only time I ever did creative work under Hannah Sutton with the, ex with the exception of publishing a two page horror comic. Uh, but other than that, you know, this is the one time I used my legal name for stand up, And that, you know, that's interesting to me just cause it's 
been so many weird pro wrestling like evolutions of who I am as a stand up since then and it's just such a strange lost era for comedy for me you know that I'm glad that I'm having a chance to document it and I'm glad to be able to release this episode and I'm glad to start the journey of speaking about stand-up even if there's going to be a a decent brick because we got to get through college and all that madness when I wasn't doing it as much Uh, but yeah this is it this is the genesis of a thing that would later on take up over a decade of my life and uh eat my 20s essentially you know and that's worth it's worth talking about and I'm glad that I had a chance So in order to prevent myself from continuing to talk in circles, uh, we're going to get the episode started. As a reminder, if you'd like to listen to my fictional podcast, Kate's Bunker Season 1 is out on all podcast platforms. I also have a live stream every two weeks on Comedy Hub Live on Twitch. Uh, So definitely look out for that as well. It's uh, every other Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Comedy Hub Live, right after Digital Slumber Party. It's an awesome show run by uh, Anthony Kaffer and Amber Irish. And if you'd like to buy Kate's Bunker merch, we got shirts and coffee mugs. Those are Kate's Bunker, the store at Shopify.com. And if for some reason you wanted to watch a series I wrote and you have a login to independent wrestling television, that would be Brooklyn Battle Comedy on IWTV. And on social, we're Hark underscores Hannah on pretty much everything. Except TikTok, because they won't let you put underscores in. So there isn't one. Okay, so that should be it. And welcome to the end of high school and the beginning of stand-up comedy. Hi, and uh, welcome back uh, from the intro and the theme music into a second uh, intro that is not a cold open. Welcome back, friends, family, parasocial relationships, and random people who found this. Uh, This is I Haven't Heard That Name in Years, a memoir of sorts where I don't actually write anything down. I just talk to people from my past. Uh, so where we are at right now, uh, if I hadn't already covered this in the intro, which I probably did, I love being redundant, it's just tits, uh, we are at the actual very beginning of my stand-up comedy, uh, air quotes, career. I think it's more of a distracted meandering around a bunch of bars, but hey, you know, we can, we can call it a career. So the very beginning of this was... One person, or two people actually, this person and her friend, are running an open mic in a hookah lounge in suburban Philly. Uh, This is Liza Miris, uh, the runner of the the infamous Fig Cafe open mic in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. Hi, Liza. It's great talking to you. Hi, Anna. (laughs) Hi. So I guess let's figure out, like, I guess the last time I saw you would have been when you were doing a version of that mic uh, in a much grander and more uh, landscapey setting as you had it at the Abington Art Center for a little bit, which is like an old 
old mansion with a big sculpture garden in the back. Uh, how, how long was that going? And do you remember, like, the last time I did that? Because I, I know it was a while. I was like, was I still short stack? What was going uh, on? I do believe you were still short stack. And yes, Abington Art Center was a fabulous venue. It had, you know, an amphitheater style lawn with a stage at the bottom. And often the sculpture park would sort of bleed into the venue. Uh, there was a while where they had an installation that had birds flying on these wires. It was just magnificent. And so you're right. Uh, the open mic started at this hookah lounge, which was very um, intimate and, and comfortable. And it had a vibe being a hookah lounge. And then it moved a coffee shop after that. And then the Abington Art Center, where it became sort of a bigger outdoor venue. And we could really stack the lawn full of people. I often had trouble where, you know, people would be spilling out of whatever venue I was in, out on the street, out in the parking lot. And uh, Abington Art Center was a great way to have enough space for everybody because it was, it was epic, it was a good time. And there were always a lot of people uh, sharing the experience and sharing their art and sharing themselves in a way that was just, it's all vibes, it was great. Yeah, and I got to experience that myself when I eventually ran a stand-up comedy open mic. I got, like, slowly pushed from, like, a much uh, darker, semi-seedier space in the Northern Liberties into eventually we got moved into the truck. Uh, because that space was like, we need a cover charge. And there was like truck staff working at the uh, the space that I, or they were, they were just audience members. And he was like, oh, well, can we move you into the truck? I'm like, do we want to go from a bar in the Northern Liberties to a historic venue? Yes. Yes, we do. Thank you. We will take this. We will run. Uh, but that was, yeah, Comedy is Liberty was the, the just the ultimate instance of <laughs> failing upward. I, I'm so excited to eventually do that episode. But yeah, let's let's go more into the origins. Uh, I know that, I, I mean, I didn't show up directly at the beginning of when you started the mic, I don't think. Um, but maybe, maybe I did. Like, how long was the mic running, do you think, before 19-year-old Hannah stumbled in the door? I'm going to say it was really early, actually, at yeah? maybe a few months, like two or three, it was a weekly open mic on Wednesday nights. Um, it's always nice to do a Wednesday night who's, you know, not feeling the hump of the middle of the week. And I feel like it gave people something to look forward to in the middle of the week, a time to go out um, in a way that maybe you could go to work the next day or college the next day. Um, and it just gave people something to, to celebrate and something to feel alive in the middle of the week in that way. So yeah, I wanna say you, were, you came just a few months in awesome and I, I remember how I showed up it was literally me like walking past the door and then stopping and seeing a flyer stuck to the door oh, yeah, fig. yeah. A, a stick figure with a hat right it was yeah yeah so, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I'd always thought about, like, wanting to do stand-up, uh, but it was all from, like, British comedy sources, mm. so it's it, it's interesting that, like, that was how I rolled in there, was just me, like, I want to be Eddie Izzard, but I had no concept of what other stand-up comics were doing uh, in my head. It's like, oh, well, I see these people on TV uh, doing these, like, long sets, you know, so that means that they probably are coming up with new material all the time, right? Like, I didn't know that stand-up comics generally take the same, like, five to ten minutes of material around for sometimes years and perfect it and perfect it and perfect it. So I was just like, right, so I should probably show up with something new every week because they haven't seen the thing before. You know, this isn't like music. They're going to get bored. They're going to remember not to laugh. 
But, you know, that's not true. That's all violently not true. Stand up. Uh, but because there were no other stand up comics at that open mic for a while until I think Chris Stenta started showing up and being around. Uh, who got, uh, yeah, God, I haven't seen him in a while either. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was just me. So I had this really interesting, like, unto- like, I, I don't know what to say. Untouched is just like, a, there was no, uh, yeah, like, I don't know how to describe it. I feel it's like small. I had a really pure is, entry into stand-up. Yeah. It's the raw sort of building blocks of it. And, you know, you say mm-hmm. that, and it makes me reflect on a lot of what that open mic was, was when we first started it, see, when I was 17 to maybe 19, there was an open mic and poetry reading that I used to go to and a bunch of my friends mm-hmm. would go and it really meant a lot to me and it really helped me build confidence and share art and meet people and have a community. And when I heard that that open mic after many years was shutting down, I thought, no, this has to exist. And that's what pushed me to grab my friend, Mickey, who also went to those open mics with me. And it was like, we have to do this in the Fit Cafe. The Hookah Lounge had just opened. They wanted live music. It was really, it felt like the universe was aligning in that way. And so that was really the goal was to give sort of older teenagers, early 20s, you know, that age that isn't going to the bar yet, that age that no business really panders to or gives a space to mm-hmm. or gives a voice to, that I wanted something for them to do because I know that that was something that I needed at that age and that I got a lot out of. And it, it, the whole vibe is that people are starting their craft, you know, and they love it a lot. And seeing people over the years really start to hone their craft. And every week they do want to learn a new song so that they can play it for people and try it out and try out new things and see how a crowd reacts. And there was a lot of support there and a lot of love there because we were all in that space and we were all the same age starting out and trying and experimenting with new things. And so when you tell that story, I imagine maybe you weren't doing comedy in the way that comedy is done, but I think you were tapping into the vibe of what was going on at the time, that it was people experimenting with art and trying new things and seeing how people react. And so I actually feel like it was quite perfect, you know, and it was amazing to have comedy there. Uh, you really stood out and you really were just so full of life and energy and, and spunk and spice and all of those things. And it really added something to the vibes. And I, so I think, I think you were right there. We were all there in the same space, enjoying the same thing, even if we had different ways of, of expressing that. Yeah. And I, I really, really appreciate that. Cause you know, when I think in hindsight, if I had run it, it just started running, go to straight comedy open mics. And I brought that like irreverent, like the Eddie Izzard shit, that Dylan Morn shit that I really wanted to do, it would have been like, uh, no, you have to have bits and you have to deal with audience and the the other and the audience is a big deal too because the audience at fig was a bunch of like musician creative weirdos which is who i grew up around that's my parents so i knew that i could land that kind of humor there you know the audiences at comedy clubs you know if you listen to crowd working like crowd work clips are huge on tiktok right now you know you're getting bob from accounting you're getting <laughs> linda from the middle of the country and it's not that's not everybody but it's a lot of people that you know i wouldn't necessarily 
necessarily have matched experiences with, and I also wanted to do shit that was uh, a lot more cerebral or just full-blown irreverent and weird. Um, I One of my favorite things, this is like one of the only pictures I have of that era, is when I just wanted to do deep-cut nerd material, but I knew your audience wouldn't understand it, so I had you hold up subtitle cards. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah, I had you hold up subtitle cards, so if I said something like Amazing Fantasy 15 and I would clap, and then you had to hold up a card that was like the first issue of Spider-Man, so people knew what the fuck I was talking about, but then I started getting like weirder with it and just like i ordered a hibiscus tea from mike on one of the subtitles cards that like had nothing to do with what i was saying it was just like yo mike can i have some hibiscus tea um <laughs> yeah and oh and then and then you know because i brought up tea and uh, you brought it up earlier it was really important to have a space if you weren't 21 yet for you to go and you know like if you were 18 already you could also smoke hookah so you felt like a little bad <laughs> not like <laughs> not like illegal bad but it was you know it was a time um i'm pretty sure i wasn't even smoking weed i, I didn't smoke weed until college uh so i you know this was my thing i just smoked hookah um i drank a tiny bit but it was because i learned how to drink in the comic book industry i knew what actual mixed drinks were so the underage alcohol that they hand you i was like this is gross i don't want to you know i <laughs> i don't want to fucking drink this so i you know i really valued that space being able to go into it and being like uh, getting to go to a like a club that's full of smoke yeah. and like cool fun people and it's kind of mysterious and you know this this guy that you know like Waleed who just like kind of came and set up the set up shop in the middle of like a strip of stores Jenkintown. off the side of 611 yeah Jenkintown of all goddamn places um suddenly just had this installation there that you know I I don't like what do you remember if there was like any friction with the surrounding businesses is there still or... uh, so i don't remember friction with the surrounding businesses but i remember friction with the fire department oh my god <laughs> <laughs> because i mean it's smoky in there and he did have like an hvac system that does i don't know how they work or if it's even hvac but you know what i mean it it clears uh -huh. there were times where the the fire alarm was going off and the fire company had to come and then they would walk in and they'd be strutting in pretty angry that they were there, that they were this, <laughs> and I think that it happened a couple times. They started threatening to find him, and then we were always panicking because my sound guys were plugging like lots of amps into one outlet. You know, there yeah. cords flying everywhere. It, it just it looked very unsafe, and and if, looking back, we were just doing the best we could with the outlets that we had. Uh, but we were sort of trying to hide that. We'd like put the bass amp in front of all the cords, hoping that they wouldn't notice this just power bar full of an explosion of cords going into, I don't even want to think about the wattage that we were putting through this place. It was pretty loud. And so I, that definitely was true. And then I think sometimes, again, because when we spill out into the parking lot or the street, there are always- Capacity issue. Down a little bit or- I think overall, it really did fly. I'm surprised. Uh, I think that they maybe wanted some nightlife on the street as well. And most of the stores that were, um, you know, during the day were closed. So I think a timing. Yeah. If we had been doing that in the middle of the day, I think it would have caused more problems for the businesses. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, Jenkintown's a bizarre place because there's some cute stuff, but there's also some stuff that just kind of feels like that strip by the fig 
feels kind of unbuilt because it's a major road. Like, 611 eventually turns into Broad Street in Philly. And it's like, you got these giant cars whizzing by and everything. And, you know, a lot of times if I'm, if I'm in a car, somebody's driving me home and I want to do the, Hey, do you want to see where I started doing stand up thing? Like, <laughs> yeah, like so, uh, occasionally we're going too fast. I'm like, it was there. Like it, it's, it's, it's a big highway rolling in front of it. Uh, and there's always seems to be like a revolving door of businesses around that area. Like it seems to just, it's cute, but it doesn't catch on so much as like, Oh, we're going to Jenkintown. Like, like New Hope or something. We're like, oh, it's a little walkable little cute area because there's always some shit kind of dipping in and out. Like, I, I don't know what it's like over there right now. I know that like eventually there was more because uh, the year that we're talking about is like 2007, 2006. So like that was kind of the beginning of like hipsterification of things, at least on the business level. Like, you know, the, the people that were actually at that mic is one thing like, yeah, we're a bunch of artists or whatever but when you're talking about people throwing up craft breweries and shit in jenkintown that that probably if not exactly around the same time maybe a couple years later that started to jump in uh but yeah like jenkintown's an interesting interesting area to um come and set up a, a hookah lounge <laughs> Uh, and, and, oh, and wasn't there also that, like, weird clip of time where it was BIOB and then they decided, like, oh, this is a terrible idea? Yeah. <laughs> Especially maybe because of the underage aspect. Oh, it was, it was precisely because of the underage aspect, I would say. You know, and so, but, it, again, to, to what you were speaking, it created that vibe of just being a little bit bad and a little bit underground, even though we were in the middle of this, you know, sort of affluent area that yeah oh yeah right like the furniture store with overpriced everything and you know it's, mm -hmm. i think it it was necessary though to have this little pocket for us and that probably breathed a lot of life into people and a lot of confidence into people and you're right the, the hipster thing went mainstream then or shortly after then uh but it's always it's it's nice to look back at the ground level of things when it was not mainstream when you did have to sort of find it or happen upon it and it, it was special it was there was something really unique and you felt like you were in on something because of it yeah it was like a family thing like i always it like felt like you know owen uh played that cheap trick <laughs> like almost every single time we had I want you to want me and it was all like oh it's this it's the song everybody we gotta we, we gotta do that if, if anything that was like the closer but well, I've probably actually, he would play closing time at the end oh we would sing that too but for sure the cheap trick and that was it was like the sing-along you know that we would all because it was a family and it was uh -huh. in a way we were really family in that it was we had this thing and it was every Wednesday night and you could rely on on them being there and seeing them. And there was just so much support and so much feedback and love. And we're really being vulnerable with each mm -hmm. other in a way. I mean, I have an anxiety disorder. So for me to get on the mic and be an MC is wild for me. And it helped me grow and everybody sharing their music and sharing their breakup songs and sharing their deepest thoughts and fears. It really does create a bond and a family. And I feel like a lot of us look back at that time glad that we have that community really nostalgic when we look at the pictures you know and it, it does yeah it's a time in our life and a time where we grew and a time where we bloomed and it was it was beautiful 
Yeah, and there was something I needed to because, like, that year was the year that I stayed back and did city year and all of Mm -hmm. my friends went to college. So I needed a new group that was in my hometown, but, like, pretty much everybody, unless they were younger than me or unless they had done something, like, gone to a super, super local college that they weren't, like super like like i had a, one of my closest friends went to manor college so that wasn't that difficult for me to get to but i, I also don't drive right. so i walked a fig it was about like three quarters of a mile up and i i wouldn't have had like an idea of where to go in philly to do comedy and uh, and you know when you mentioned the fig being supportive again i'm glad i started comedy with you guys because that is not how the stand-up comedy environment right. is it is not supportive it is in or specifically at least in philly it's not i've heard in other cities it's a little bit more like okay we're gonna help each other philly it's just cold hard <laughs> every man or woman or non-binary person for themselves you you know like we're all competing for scraps it's like how many spots are there paid spots even thinner on the ground boys club shit you know it's 2006 there's you know all kinds of like god knows what kind of like weird sexual harassment shit might have been different if i had showed up as a 19 year old and you know and again i'm doing stand-up as a 19 year old all that shit takes place in bars i wouldn't have even been able to go to half of these places you know so it this gave me a space to also have like in a kind of microdose the college experience too <laughs> it's just yeah yeah it, did. it felt like college vibes and i i agree it gave you a space where when you were talking earlier i was struck by you saying the word no that somebody would have said to you no that's not how you do comedy and that could be yeah. so damaging to somebody who is starting something new whatever it mm-hmm. is because whatever art or creativity whether you're a writer or a musician you really need support in those times when you're you're trying something very difficult and very personal and you really need yeses you need yeses mm-hmm. and encouragement and and i think hearing no at that time might have stopped you or being sexually harassed at that yeah. might have stopped you from pursuing the thing that you feel in your heart i remember there was one time I don't even know. It was spontaneous, but you just, you knew the whole thriller dance and he started doing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. No, I did that because I had just taught uh, it to my Rocky horror cast as a Uh, pre-show. Yeah. So I I did in fact, and I had to teach other people, you know, we were so into it and it just, it was really (laughs) spontaneous fun. It just, everybody either jumped up and was involved or was, you couldn't not look at it. You know, everybody was looking at the table. And that's clearly not something you can do at a comedy club, but it was so entertaining. And it really brought something to the space and everybody got excited and was with you. And we were all that vibing together in this one thing that's, yeah, sort of geeky to know it and just to do it. And you got all that support and encouragement for exactly who you were. And and it just occurs to me that everybody needs that. You need people to love you and support you for exactly who you are, not who you pretend to be. And and that moment was beautiful for that reason. Yeah, and then what it really did too was it was the building block for how I would eventually like enter it's stand-up comedy proper as many people consider because you know, I started with you and then I was doing it at like comic book conventions and a couple of other like mixed music open mics and like college talent shows and shit, but I didn't interact with other comedians until I'm going to say like 2012-2013, oh, wow. yeah. like maybe. Yeah, it was a long time later 
later. So when I showed up at these mics and they're doing the like, oh, we got five minutes and you just carry it around everywhere. And I'm like listening to people do the same material every week. I'm like, I don't have to do this. Um, I was doing just fine before, so I'm just going to do what I did before. And then I also had the advantage because, you know, people are real gatekeepy and bullying if you're a new comic and you show up and you're no good. Uh, and it takes a while, you know, you get pushed back, you know, you're not socially, you know, you haven't gotten that clout in comedy yet socially, so you're pushed to the end of these, like, 40-person open mics, you gotta go up at 1am, and then you don't have audience there, so you have to just figure out how to impress four comics, and there's some people that will just get stuck at that level, or they just won't, they're like, this is bullshit, it's not worth it, what the fuck, uh, and, you know, not progress past that point, and I, I know for a fact that, like, part of the reason I eventually ended up dipping out, and why I never, like, really jumped on the clubs, like, oh, no, no, they need to pay attention to me, is I, I was getting bored. I used to do more fun shit with you guys, right. and I used to ha be able to spread my wings more, and I'm like, I'm gonna keep taking these weirdo gigs where I actually have fun. It's not gonna get me clout, but, you know, I've already proven that people like this and I can do this. It's just, I gotta find my audience. This is not my audience, but these guys are going to make me better and they're gonna make me more flexible and call me out on my shit because like their supportive environments are great sometimes you do need to be harshly called out by a veteran comic if you're like fucking looking at the ceiling too many times or something yeah, you know sometimes <laughs> yeah yeah so you do you need you need your people as well people who understand the depths of comedy and then you need people to support and i think i'm, I'm interested i think it's really uh cool how, how you did both right and how you have both perspectives mm -hmm. and you see the pros and cons of both. And I think that it's really amazing that you were able to to be in those different spaces and that they helped you grow in different ways. And that's why the world should just be diverse, you know, and, and the people should do things because we need each other. We really do. Yeah, absolutely. Also, for for the record, you're the third per you're you're the third person I have interviewed that is a teacher. And while you're not my teacher, you're absolutely talking like a, a supportive teacher, and I love that. Like, <laughs> so I'm like starting to notice. Like, yeah, no, you you really have that. You know, you want to encourage people to be better. That's why you got into yes. your profession, and that kind of really made you a great person to be uh, co-running a creative space like that. Which, by the way, shout to Mickey, who I've actually seen a bunch more times because she works at the Trader Joe's. If she, I don't know if she still works there, but she works. Is she, yeah, I mean that's a that, that's a stable fucking job. Hey, if you're an hey, artist, it's Trader yeah. Joe's. She's capped out and makes like teacher money coming out. Yeah, for sure. Like it's and then she it's a good place. Her art. Where I'm coming home and doing lesson plans and grading, she she has a work life and a home life, and she can do her art. And I'm jealous a lot, you know, because mm -hmm. um, that she has the life there. Yeah, yeah, good teachers are freaking important, though, and I'm re I'm remembering that more than more as I interview my teachers. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, you are the origin story, yeah. you know, like, and you, again, you are the origin story, too. I remember very clearly the first time I did comedy there, like, when I was leaving, you actually grabbed me by both hands and you went, come back and bring the funny with you, and that was, like, a movie, it was, that was an inter eternal movie moment, like, that I will, like, if I have to do a movie version of this or my life or anything, that's, like, you, you gave the line, you, uh, <laughs> you came in. Thank you for telling me that, I wouldn't have remembered that, but, you know, it probably just didn't mean the same thing to me, but I'm getting all the feels now, because yeah, that is a movie moment, you know. 
It is. It is. Because it sticks out. And I needed that. Like I said, I needed that encouragement. I think it would have been much more difficult for me to start out in a place with like no encouragement and fight my way up than to start in a place where I had encouragement and then I got to a place where people being a little bit more harsh but at the same time I was kind of like okay maybe I wasn't doing this in your turf maybe I didn't go here but I started this shit when I was 19 and I'm a 22 23 year old talking to you right now so you cannot convince me that there is only one way to do this and one audience to do this with because I've been doing this you know maybe not with you uh but I've been doing this and I have bombed I'm like not you know completely unaware that this isn't always going to be perfect the way I want it to be you know like I've had my bad sets and everything but I'm just like you know that it's it kind of gave me this much more confident uh, cocky attitude going in and I was getting booked like immediately because of it because I'm like oh no I've already been doing this for years I, I know you haven't heard of me it almost made me seem like a it's like the original hipster it's, oh you probably haven't heard of me I'm kind of underground you're like, not cool <laughs> enough to know me and I agree with you and that you knew something they didn't which is that there is comedy outside of comedy club and that there can be comedy and laughter outside of the place where that's the only thing and I think it was important to bring that I really liked that you were there doing stand-up because it added new dimensions to the experience for all of the audience members and that's something that maybe those comedy people weren't catching up to you in that way, that maybe they shouldn't just be with each other in a space that's their own. And maybe they should have been branching out because it is an art, right? It's mm -hmm. creativity and self that you're bringing to it. And maybe there should be more comedy in more, like, I, I don't want to say the word traditional art space, mm -hmm. but you know what I mean? Like there should be yeah. more of that anywhere there's art and especially anywhere there's performance art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but there's just a lot of gatekeeping in comedy with it's like you need to do it the way the forefathers did it, the sign, the, the you know the, the the Richard Pryor, the the Mount Rushmore. No, you need to do it that way. You need to be in clubs. You need to suffer. Um, but being funny is the most nebulous thing in the world. Like stand up, yeah, there's a, there is a specific art to it, but you can stand up anywhere and be funny. It's just a question of how much like clout and respect you want from other people, and like whether you buy into the notion is just because you're an artist. If you don't suffer, you're not going to make good art. Because I think that that's really passed down from like capitalist shit over your head than it is like you know that's them convincing us that our work is like fun so you gotta suffer uh because you know the rest of us gotta work air quotes real jobs you know and i i hate making big they statements when i'm like pointing at the sky going oh they just want to uh, when i don't actually have a name to attach it but still like no you got it's <laughs> a vibe and an environment and i think that sounds to me at least that that comes from a place of trauma Right. Mm -hmm. when you would be that negative about something and be that gatekeepy about something, because when we are most authentically ourselves without the trauma that nobody escapes childhood without mm -hmm. trauma and nobody escapes uh, diving into a creative art, especially a performing one without some kind of trauma, because you're right. There's always a set that goes wrong. There's always a lot of anxiety there. There's you know, it's, it's never going to be perfect. And mm -hmm. we can hang on to that trauma and almost traumatize the next person that comes mm -hmm. behind us, or we can open up more and be vulnerable and talk. But 
I think you're so vulnerable on the stage when you're doing stand-up. It, it must yeah, be yeah. You don't need to add more vulnerability to going up and literally like saying all of the problems in your marriage and trying to make them funny. Like you don't need to be more vulnerable than that. It's not necessary. You know? So I have like that when you come off the stage, you almost have to be something else, right? You, yeah. You bring it all on the stage. You leave it all on the stage, and then maybe if you have defense mechanisms and protectors when you come off of it, that's understandable. Right. Yeah. Just every comic is somehow damaged, but that there's something about the art that does take a lot of heart, you know? Yeah, because bombing is traumatic. Standing up there while you're like airing all of your personal fears, if you're in front of 100 people and they're just dead silent and just not taking it as funny. So you're just saying sad things. I mean, I, like that wasn't the kind of, that wasn't the kind of comedy that I did more often. I mean, I was a lot more like irreverent, silly, hyperactive, and that's that's still how I am. But you know, I'd have bits like that and I'd have times where I was silly and I'm just like, oh, I'm just a freak. I don't make any sense to these people. And then, you know, I just feel alienated and weird in a completely different way, you know, like that. And it's humbling and it was important for, you know, like the art form is humbling, but that doesn't mean you need to be like gatekeeping and shady when you get out of state. And that doesn't mean you need to develop Stockholm syndrome with comedy clubs that are treating you like garbage. Like the, like the comedy store documentary, like when I, uh, when people have, t people have told me about it, I haven't watched it, but people have told me that it's just, I, a lot of comics going like, yeah, we went through all of this horrible shit, but it made us good. And you're just kind of like, they could have run a business where they paid, they, they paid you more and did, but like at one point they had a strike, but it's like, there was no need for them to do that to you and other comics not having to do that doesn't make them worse. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't make them soft. Like you went through something unreasonable. Like that, that's the same argument I make when men are like, oh, if women want equality, you know, maybe they should get drafted. I'm like, you shouldn't be getting drafted. Yeah. Nobody should be getting drafted. I am not arguing this <laughs> unless you acknowledge like, no one should go to war against their will. Don't tell me that women should go to war against their will for equality. How about, like, we don't need to sign up or we don't have the war? Like, that's that's a good analogy. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's they could have been good without the trauma. And what would yeah. have been better without the trauma, I think, is... And a lot of the trauma that stand-up comes from is also from home, so you don't need to add more. Like, a lot of people that, like, got really the shit kicked out of them uh, and figured out how to make light of it as a coping mechanism, those are some of the best yeah. stand-up comedians in history match that description. There's no reason for clubs to add shit on that by, like, you know, poverty is trauma. There's no reason for, like, clubs that are making a decent clip of money, like the UCBs where they're collecting all this money but not paying the art. You know, you don't have to add poverty to these people's trauma too i mean you know or the at least the poor ones and not the rich kids that are taking improv classes but you know still like you don't it, there's no need to like inflict that kind of cult mentality on people that you know you're not really in this and you know you don't get time with like the special famous big people comics unless you play ball you know and then comedy being even more nebulous you know comedians talk about this all the time that the funniest person they know is almost never a comedian it's just some guy they know at, like at not even at, like not an office necessarily but like some guy they know working at the auto shop down the street like that's the funniest motherfucker i know and like those are the kind of people i've been casting in the audio drama kate's bunker because i'm like i don't need you to be a comedian i need you to be funny 
Um, and I don't yeah. need you to like give me an opportunity in another space in comedy that I'm like low key swapping you for for this booking. I need you to be funny. So we're booking booking a lot of professional wrestlers and porn stars and other people <laughs> that are just like I'm like I don't need to deal with comedy. I need a funny fucker. And so I've picked this guy who's a wrestler with a, an accounting gimmick who like rips off a, a shirt that has a suit and tie or like he's, he rips off a shirt and tie and there's another shirt and tie <laughs> underneath that shirt and he starts fighting people like CPA is, is, is like one of my main people I cast and I'm like that alone that like bit alone where you rip off your shirt there's another shirt under it um I could name six different stand-up sets I would rather not see than that for like three seconds like that is so funny um, and I'm like, that's, those are the kind of people that I want to cast. Those are people I want to work with. And, you know, standups get so gatekeepy when they're like, oh, all of the comedy is on TikTok. And I'm like, yeah, because there's no barrier to entry to TikTok right. if they're not funny. Uh, I mean, what, what is real? Like, those would be like, oh, that's not real comedy. And, you know, I'm like, that doesn't, that concept doesn't mean anything. <laughs> It's like a dog farting might make me laugh 50 times more than your bit that you've worked on for 10 years and there's nothing you're going to do about it, you know? Democratize. <laughs> the people get to decide. I'm really fascinated, especially as a teacher. So I see what the, the teenagers are doing all the time. And um, I'm fascinated by how they're bringing art to social media in this mm -hmm. way because it's really almost changing dimensions. One, because like you said, there's not a gatekeeper. And if you think about historically whether it's fine art and painting or it's music or it's comedy or anything, society really doesn't treat its artists with a lot of respect where you would have parents yeah. telling people not to become an artist because you're going to end up even just starving artists being a thing, being a, a, a tagline is really a problem, especially because, you know, there was something on social media recently with the pandemic that was pointing out that people really leaned on art during the pandemic and people don't really think about that every movie you see every song that you listen to can you imagine riding in silence in the car can you imagine yeah movies can you imagine people were buying a lot of more art for their home mm -hmm. especially for zoom backgrounds they wanted to have mm -hmm. art in the background and then for them to appreciate it so much and use it so much and and we can't imagine a world without these things but then that musicians are, are historically not paid well either and not treated well by the mm -hmm. music industry, that there's huge gatekeeping and fine art and, and things like TikTok and the internet and just people paying people directly for their art. Just it's going to evolve into something else. And we're in the very beginnings of this now. And we're not sure where it's going to go. But just as we see people, you know, painting and then they put it on YouTube all sped up that kind of stuff mm. or, or even just the, I, the idea of the humor that's coming out of TikTok is very different. So I feel like in a couple of decades, we're, we're going to create a new way, a new way of being mm. an artist, a new way of monetizing your art and a new way of consuming art that ultimately I hope will be better for the artists and better for society. I agree. And I also like the kind of humor coming out of TikTok really makes me feel like it's my time. And it also kind of just because of the opportunities being presented to me now is like you're a, a queer irreverent 
comedian. That's like what's in. And I'm like, I never thought, I never thought that I would age into that. I never thought the big pants would just come back and being like weird and having rainbow hair was going to be the popular thing. And Abercrombie was going to have a documentary about how bad it is. Like you told 2000s me like that. I would be like, yeah, buddy. Yeah, because we were so wild at the time. You know, I remember just yeah. looked at like I was some sort of creature from another planet. And to be uh -huh. fair, that really made us, I think, grab onto each other more, right? That that means yeah. somebody like you. Oh, thank God I'm not alone, right? Mm -hmm. Rocky Horror did that for us, right? And Open Mic did that for us. And thank God for those things that allowed us to recognize each other and and be in the same spaces together. Because you know, the '90s, the 2000s, it was really I, I, there was an air of conformity in uh -huh. those times. But that's never what people remember. That's not what the kids, it's interesting because that's not what the kids remember. History always remembers the freaks, you know, like not everybody in the 60s was a hippie. Not everybody in the 80s was like running around in like, like neon bodysuits and like rollerblading and shit and doing cocaine and shit, you know, like, but that, that's always who gets remembered. So that's why it's like watching younger people romanticize scene kids and also being blindsided by having younger fans on social media because they're like, oh, you're still grunge. I'm like, what? Uh, I I haven't been like I think that one of the funniest things to ever happen to me in Brooklyn is that I'm sitting at, you know listening to music on the train and some younger person comes up to me and goes excuse me but I think it is just so cool that you still have an iPod Nano and I was like I was just like, man, I just never stop buying these. I don't like, I don't like having, I like having a separate music thing than my phone because I don't want to be looking at my phone, but I'm like, I gotta sound like a thousand years old saying this, but I don't care. I did continue to buy iPod Nanos until they stopped selling them at the Apple store. I was like real, I dug my fucking heels in, like... Not the shuffle, because that was a weird thing where we all just left our taste of music in the hands of God. And, uh, yeah, but... I agree, because I remember and miss those times where, you know, it's really about the battery life for me. I like having a... Oh, my God. Yeah. No, I don't want to be in my phone when I'm listening to music. I want to be in my mind um, and not hearing any notification exactly. whatsoever, notification. you know? Oh. Yeah, and that was the happy medium. The, the the iPods were like the happy medium between your shit being in your phone and having to deal with a disc man that was potentially skipping every time you coughed, you know, like I <laughs> And they probably respect us a lot for that too. I agree and I see my kids are coming in, you know, they're wearing Nirvana t shirts and I'm like, What do you even know about Nirvana? And Grunge was so Seattle even almost. Yeah, and, and so it's wild that that is what they're being nostalgic about. Or I saw a kid the other day had a Slipknot T-shirt on. And Whoa! I, really? <laughs> really? Because if you were into Slipknot at the time, people were literally afraid of you. Oh yeah, no, they're afraid of you, or they're just like you're on drugs. I I think it's really funny that pretty much everything of that genre came back except hacky sack. Um, oh, that's so <laughs> oh, we played hacky sack at the thing. Yeah, they did. A lot. You know, um, it was just, I always thought, like, my line of logic when I was younger, you know, I wasn't trying to get drugs, but at one point I was, like, underage and hormonal enough that I'm like, I want to see what porn looks like. And in my head, I was like, well, if you want what the bad kids have, you got to go over to who's playing hacky sack. So that is actually how I got my uh, first 
porn was I walked up to a group of people playing hacky sack and I knew a couple of them. I'm like, hey, do you guys know where to get this? And and the dude was like, I mean, like, it it was like I was also asking them about their, like, shitty shame or whatever in their head. But they were like, I mean, I guess we can, you know, trying to act like they know less than they do. He's like, I mean, I'll I'll just get some stuff from LimeWire, you know. Uh, (laughs) I got, like... A burn CD full of shitty clips was, like, the first time I ever got anything. But, yeah, it was just, like, that, but that group was always standing outside of the school and, like, fucking skipping school and being bullied and shit. And now we, and, you know, now we've, like, come full circle into this thing where that's, like, everybody. And I can understand, like, parents that weren't a part of that weird huddle at the time probably don't know what to do with this because the people they used to bully are now their children. So, yeah. Well. <laughs> and I was one of those kids. I was playing hacky sack everywhere yeah. I went, you know, and people would, yeah. they were outside of a place, they sort of shuffle by like all oh, these, these dang teenagers who are, you know, these degenerates. Like, How dare they kick around a bag of rocks? You know, and now, and now, it, but it feels very different because you know, the kid, I didn't actually speak to this kid, but um, when I've asked kids about their band t-shirts from the 90s and the 2000s, they often don't really know the band. And that's not surprising. But then I asked them, well, then why are you wearing the shirt? And it's that they like the art of it, right? They like that Nirvana sort of old emoji, right? They mm-hmm. like Slipknot's I think they were wearing masks or whatever, so I imagine that's what it is, is they're just... Oh, yeah, and it's definitely not all of the, you know, it's definitely not all of them. There's a, there's always a little pocket of super precocious yeah. uh, person, and now they have the internet in their pocket, so they could, like, a person that wants to be an autodidact, a teenager that wants to just really up their game and learn, they can do it way fast. Right. They can become, like, the smartest motherfucker you've ever met in the planet, like, way faster, and they can be interested in five million things and learn about all of it immediately, you know, it's, and that's, that's awesome, you know, you're always gonna get old souls, you're always gonna get, you know, precocious people, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm explaining this to a high school teacher, and I don't have to, this is more for the audience, um, but, you know, there you're always going to get that and that's that's heartening and the fact that that's it should even though even if they were kind of disingenuous not disingenuously wearing the band shirt they love it let them wear it and you don't want more gatekeeping or anything like that and it's also not i mean i listen to pink floyd but it's not like people don't do the same shit with the dark side on the moon shirt ever since that album once dropped you know (laughs) that they they don't know the songs you know or they yeah. that are on the radio but that doesn't mean you can't appreciate something and i think it's a symbol it's on what we're saying a lot is that you can come into any kind of an artistic space because fashion is also art what you put mm-hmm. on your body is an expression of yourself the same way that music or comedy is and the more that we can just allow people to come into a space without judgment and explore and be there there really is just a way to love people and bring people in. Because if, if you do love Sitna and you're judgmental towards this person because they maybe are wearing the shirt and not listening to the song, and then they never wear the shirt again, how is that helping mm-hmm. anybody? Boo, right? yeah, no, that's, that's not helpful. It's, you know, like gatekeeping is such a common thing, but it's, it's from insecurity. I think comedians, you know, are notoriously one of the most insecure groups of people you could possibly meet. And that 
insecurity does breed gatekeeping because you know if my thing isn't special anymore how am i special you know how do i like what is my importance in social order mean you know and you get that also this local scenes versus you know I, i came to new york like five years ago one of the things you learn is that all of the overblown importance in local scenes like the guy that is the hot shit that gets all the booking in the local scene you go to new york you go to la they haven't fucking heard of you they don't know you you're not it doesn't matter and it's like and then you jump even further outside of stand-up comedy basically where i am now most people on the street can only name the same 10 to 15 stand-up comedians but there's thousands you know thousands and thousands and thousands and it's just like you're never as important as you think you are so there's really no reason to be like kicking other people out of this place that you're in you know like you're if you're gonna you know we're all like tiny little meat specks in the universe there's no need to like cling to this false notion of superiority in this little bubble when it in fact is a, a little it's a little bubble you don't have to be full of yourself you know and it doesn't work you know you can yeah. better <laughs> push somebody down but then once that person is gone you then are unfulfilled because you were leaning on something that was not true in the first place Whereas if you build yourself up on your own merit, where you build yourself up based on, hey, when I was this age, I wasn't that great. And now look at how much better I am when you focus on your progress. And when you look inside, then you have a much more stable sense of self that is not reliant on other people being beneath you in order to feel good about yourself. And you're right. We are just these little meat specs. And Mm -hmm. so it it almost doesn't matter. You could be at the top of anything and you're, you're... still not the top of anything if you're that insecure, if you need that thing in order to feel on top. And if you go somewhere else or to a different audience, I thought it was interesting when you were talking about that as well. Mm-hmm. You're not finding your audience, um, not taking that so personally. It's it's all kind of unique. Yeah. And the only thing that is real is you and yourself and the moment and the experience and that you need to be finding a way to be 100% in the moment, that sort of mindful meditation, you know, that you need to be there and be secure and be with yourself. And that is how to be happy and fruitful and and less traumatized, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like no need to add extra condition. I mean, like, it's not like the rough experiences in my life haven't conditioned me, you know, the stuff that I, like city year in general, that year, was so intense for me and comedy was like a big part of my escape you know that night once a week was a big part of my escape city years rough you know uh when i really i i'm not sure because i'm like releasing these podcasts in order of like when they happen in my life uh but you know i just you know recorded the episode about city year and you know that was like a trial by fire get the you know because i'd never been in an inner city i've never been in a philly school like that that's a trial by fire get the reality slapped out of you you know like you don't need like you don't need to add trauma to some of the experiences that I had um but that doesn't mean that they weren't worthwhile you know all of that kind of stuff made me who I was but that doesn't mean you know if you're not traumatized that you have to like intentionally go seek trauma you know I mean like there's I don't know. There's, I think there's a difference between trauma and like going through difficult steps to achieve a goal 
but you know, there's also you need to recognize which steps you took are for fucked up reasons. You know, like the the kind of compromises I had to make to be a woman in comedy and you know be nice and not be overbearing and not ask too much, you know, because you don't want to, like, fuck with the boys club or whatever, you know, those are, I recognize that they were shitty things that I was doing, and that was kind of, my bridge into New York was very keep my head down, hang out with a lot of guys that, you know, after a gender studies degree, I'm like, this humor is, like, real fucked up and racist or whatever, but I felt like I had to do it to make that professional transition to New York because that's what everybody else is doing. And then, you know, of course, I would eventually sort of find out all this bullshit, but by the same token, you know, I'm being taken... The people that first took me around Comedy Cellar and took me around the big clubs were not people that I resonated with on, uh, like, inequality issues and stuff like that. But I felt like that was what I had to do. And it also put me in an environment where I myself was being challenged out of my little academic gender studies bubble. Uh, And I also was constantly having to, like, check my own assumptions and, like, maintain a sense of self. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure where that tangent totally came from. I think it was just, yeah, I was talking, oh, I was talking about struggling and like whether or not like, okay, yeah, that struggle came from a weird place. Ideally, I wouldn't have ever had to deal with anyone that was still, you know, making jokes like black people don't swim, you know, ideally that wouldn't have been the thing. Um, but that doesn't mean that didn't bring value, uh, but also really it shouldn't have ever had to have been. Well, and, and should we even have to do it? Because what I hear you talking about is the patriarchy, right? Yeah. Patriarchy yeah. is damaging to everybody, right? So it's damaging to women, right? Because it's the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. We're just second class citizens and, and yeah. you can be, but it's also damaging to, to men because. Yeah. Very damaging. You know? actually believe what they're saying or are they similar to you just doing it because it's what everybody else is doing and they feel that they yeah into this and they feel like boys don't cry and yeah mean and strong and in order to be a man that you have to fit into this and then if you consider that maybe every man is a sensitive human being that is hurt Mm. on the inside and then putting out this this sort of fake outer level outer layer um, that to fit into the patriarchy and the more they do it then the more you have to do it and the more you do it then that lends credence to the whole thing right women hold up the patriarchy as well nobody yeah. is actually fitting into it and it's actually damaging everybody and although being traumatized by the patriarchy allows you to navigate the patriarchy later in mm-hmm. life it would be better if we just did not have the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, it would be better if you just didn't have to do that. Uh, but that doesn't mean I can't see value in the experiences I went through because, like, yeah, you can say, oh, it would be nice, but that's not nice is not how the world well, works. We are looking at the um, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, or you won't survive, basically. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, like, to bring it full circle, men shouldn't be drafted, and uh, I shouldn't have, I got very lucky that I didn't start in such a rough place. I started with you, you know? Like, I I could have been starting in a space where I felt like this is what it always has to be and not just when I hit the times like, okay, you're making a transition to New York now and you want to be taken seriously by the clubs. That means you have to high five the boy comics that, you know, like that is kind of the way it has to be. But like at the start of stand up, 
I started with you, so I wasn't, you know, in any way thinking that, like, in that situation, I realized that, no, this isn't how it has to be, because I also, I mean, I had no concept of the way it was across the grass or whatever, but, like, I I experienced that that shit wasn't real. Yeah, exactly. I I experienced that shit wasn't real, and then I was also the only stand-up at your mic for a while, so I didn't even have any concept of, like what in theory you know like what it could have been i made up my own way i made up my own path and i got to really stick to that you know i'm glad you did yeah um and i think with that that beautiful uh (laughs) that, that beautiful little tangent that sounded uh conclusive seems like the best possible way to end this podcast i agree really enjoyed doing this thank you so much yeah, yeah, absolutely, Liza. It was it was wonderful reconnecting with you. We should reconnect in a less uh, structured, recorded format at some point. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> All right, cool, cool. All right, well, have a good one. Okay. <laughs>